listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This new series is going to be called uh, Reclaim the Good Life. Reclaim the Good Life. And it's going to be a study of Romans chapter 6. And we're going to study this chapter together. Now, in order to study this chapter together over the next few weeks, we've got to understand some of the context which we will do over the next few weeks. We'll understand the context as a whole. It's a dangerous thing to go in the middle of a book and not deal with the context surrounding it, so we'll do that. But Romans 6 has something pivotal to say, I think, and it it talks about this good life. Now, in order to talk about the good life, we've got to think through what the good life really is. So the question for us is, what is the good life? And the world has a lot of definitions as to what the good life is. It promotes the good life And it promotes what's good in many different ways. And so if you take a look, I've got some examples of what the good life is. For one, the good life is about growing vegetables. Uh, Why a vegetable garden will make you happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. So if you want the good life, good news is you can get a vegetable garden, plant vegetables, and voila, you have a good life. All right, but then the appropriate thing to do once you've planted your good life is now you need to eat your good life. So... Now that you planted the vegetables that have given you a good life, if you want a good life, you need to cook them up, and, and you'll find the good life. So here's some creative rep- recipes. And once you're eating, you need to sip the good life, so you need to make sure you can indeed sip the good life. Uh, so now you've grown vegetables, and that's the good life. You're eating vegetables, and that's the good life. And now you're sipping a little drink with the vegetables, and that's the good life. And then the next appropriate thing is, while you're sipping and eating and drinking, you may want a little background music. So Ruth McGinnis has written an album for you called The Good Life, um, and these are songs for The Good Life. So nothing better than eating your veggies after the ones that you planted and sipping around The Good Life and listening to music by Ruth McGinnis for The Good Life. But if her instrumental sort of ballad sort of way is not your your dig, then you can go uh, reggae style with Coco T, and he will lead you through The Good Life as well. Um, if you want to get a little edgier with your good life. Um, and and you know, while you're listening to reggae, you may decide that you want to step it up a notch with the good life. So you can go to the good life and, and get a lots of fancy stuff and hold a cigar. And guys, you can wear a nice fancy suit and all kinds of stuff around you and celebrate uh, the good life. And even buy this guide that will walk you through what that looks like. But after all that eating and sipping and listening to music, you probably need to work out a little bit. So you can go and get the good life at the gym. Um, at Good Life Fitness, that would be a good thing for you and me, uh, especially for me. So you can get Good Life Fitness, and while you're working out for The Good Life, you might want to listen to a little bit more music for your workout. So One Republic's written an album called The Good Life, and so that would be good for you as well. So they'll jam out The Good Life while you're working out, you know, working off all the vegetables that you created for your good life. Uh, and, and if that's not really your style, then, then Corey Smith has written an album. It's more of a pop style um, that, that'll take you through The Good Life. But the bad news is, If you're under 50, you really can't have the good life. So all of those who are under 50, we're kind of up the creek uh, because the good life is only for those over 50. Um, And all those over 50, oh, oh, finally I get amens out of some of you. Never get amens out of you. And on this, I get an amen. That is just, we need to talk about priorities, people. All right, But, but the good thing is, you know, so you can get tools and resources for making the good life happen. And then once you've done this, if you're over 50, the next logical thing is for you to move to Nebraska <laughs> because that's where the good life is. And, um, and once you've moved to Nebraska, you don't stop there. You've got to find some 
places of recreation because we know that you need those new public spaces for recreation in order to have the good life because recreation matters. And while you're playing with your family uh, in Nebraska, living up the good life, you can listen to a little Tim Nichols um, and he'll take you through and tell you his album's actually titled Where the Good Life Is. So if you feel like you haven't found it, you listen to him, you probably can find the good life. Um, And so if you're listening to Tim Nichols, you'll probably get a phone call from a financial advisor who works for a company called The Good Life who will provide you practical financial tips so you can plant your garden well, cook them well, sip a little well, work out well, listen to the right music, have the finances to do it all. And if you find yourself through this Good Life journey feeling really full of angst, then no better place to go than Kanye West to find out what The Good Life's really about. So Kanye will take you through the good life, and he will let you know what the good life really is in an angst-driven sort of way. Uh, And then, of course, when you discover that Kanye doesn't have the answer either, um, you'll just be left with this company who says that you got to get a life, get a good life, and live it with gusto, whatever that good life is. The world offers a lot of definitions as to what the good life is. And so we're out pursuing the good life, and we live in a country that honors the American dream in pursuit of happiness. And so we pursue this good life with all that we have. We do pursue it with gusto, and what we end up doing is leaving the real good life on the table if we're not careful, because we allow the world to define what is good instead of the creator of heaven and earth who in the beginning when he created it all, looked at everything and said it is very good. See, there was a good life we were created to live in. And this good life was to be lived in an ongoing relationship with God through Christ. But now all of this has happened and we have all these different definitions of the good life. So instead of trusting the one who created the very concept of good, Instead of trusting the one who created humanity to live in a good life, we're ridden with disasters and brokenness and economic struggle, and we listen to the world as to what good is. So we achieve it in retirement, or we achieve it in education, or we achieve it in things. And we fail to follow the one who showed us what the good life looks like in Jesus, and then shows us what the good life really is through his word. In a sense, we as Christ followers, need to reclaim the good life. But if you're going to reclaim the good life, especially in a world full of disasters and economic strain and brokenness and sin and sickness and death, then you've got to let God define what good is. Because if you let the world define what good is, you're not going to find the good life. You're just going to find a life. And so I want you to listen Because the world defines the good life in terms of accumulating. But the gospel defines the good life in terms of giving. It's a little different, isn't it? The world defines the good life in terms of seeking self-protection, but the gospel defines the good life in terms of self-sacrifice. Because that is how Jesus lived and that is what he did. The world defines the good life as doing for yourself first, yet the gospel defines the good life as doing for others first. Because that is how Jesus lived and what he 
has done. The world defines the good life as having good self-esteem and feeling good about yourself, whereas the gospel defines the good life as finding your worth in who God says you are and what God says is true about you. And that is different than the world. The world defines the good life as in providing a sense of security for your loved ones. Though it's a noble and even biblical cause, the gospel further defines the good life as realizing that true certainty and security is found only in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The gospel is different from the world because the world defines the good life as embracing privilege, entitlement, your rights, what is due you. And this often creates boundaries and classes, social, economic, gender, race. But yet the gospel defines the good life as in freedom from those things, which is ironic, isn't it? Because we think those things are freedom. Freedom from those things, which leads to a boundaryless life, where there is a kaleidoscope of colors, a kaleidoscope of races and gender, but there are no classes that keep us from being one. And that's different from the world. The good life, in order to be good, has to be defined by God. I want to read you this quote because it is a question we have to wrestle with. Because I realize that over the course of the next few weeks, many of you are going to sit here and I'm going to sit here and we're going to wrestle with this. We're going to wrestle with a world that allures us with the trappings of success and that allures us with what the good life is and it being retirement and all these things and we live in a strained place and a strained world and strained times and we're going to be allured to all that and you're going to hear all this church speak and at some point, life is going to conflict with what God is saying and we're going to be left with a choice. I know Fred Butt. So then I'll leave you with this before we move to the text. As members of God's church, will we trust that God knew what he was doing when he gave us his word? Together will we realize that our greatest need is not to become a successful business person, a high-paid employee, a comfortable retiree, a good spouse, or even a good parent or a good grandparent, but our greatest need is to know God and walk with him. When are we as his church going to trust what he says in his word? That we're going to trust that he knew as creator of life and creator of good what good really is even within our modern context because when we know what good really is according to God, it changes what we view as social norms. It changes how we love people. It changes how we see different people. It changes how we respond to inhumane treatment in an inhumane world. It changes how we respond to the brokenness of this world. It changes how I see the foreigner. It changes how I see the other gender. It changes how I love my wife. It changes how I treat my, changes how I treat my kids. It changes everything because God has defined what is good. And that often will not line up with what the world says is good. But make no mistake, the world's not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, and he'll always be the enemy. It's just the world is so out of whack at times that it's lost touch with its creator. 
And we're a people who've come back into a relationship with a creator who's supposed to show the world what it looks like to be in touch with its creator. And so then anytime we as Christians go out living a different kind of good life, what we end up doing is following along with the world's way and leave the world of God behind. And that's not the good life. Martin Luther was a 16th century reformer of the Christian church. He got it kicked out of the Catholic church because he discovered that the Bible taught that man was saved by grace through faith and it changed his life and wrecked him from the inside out. It cost him everything. And it is said that when he found his, his, his strength flagging and his fear growing and he became weak in his own faith and in his own heart, it is said that he would stand up and he would cry out with at the top of his lungs, I am baptized! And in that proclamation, he would find strength and hope to move forward, to do the great work that God had called him to do. Luther taught that baptism is not water only, but it is water used together with God's word and by his command. That is a quote. This theology of life and faith and this theology and practice of what baptism is radically shaped who he was. When addressing what baptism meant for daily living, Luther said, It means that our sinful self with all its evil desires and deeds should be drowned through daily repentance and that day after day a new self should arise to live with God in righteousness and purity forever. And so Martin Luther, when he would preach and he would look out at the Christians, he would often say this, and it's what I say to us today. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. And you could suppose that Luther took his cues from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. The church of Rome had found themselves in a bit of a tizzy. They had come to know Jesus Christ in a very, very tumultuous culture that was offering all kinds of good life. But they found the gospel, and they believed it and trusted it. And so they were saved people by grace, through faith, and they trusted that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord of lords and King of kings. But even in their own journey, they started to pursue in their own way other types of good life. And so Paul had to write them to help them redefine what the good life is. And they went so far in their journey that they even thought, okay, well, okay, grace came to us because sin was so entrapping that people were dead and lost in sin, so God had to do what people could never do for themselves and come in and save people and release people and free people. They call that grace. So God did what he did in grace because of the depth and the broad, broad effects of sin. And so their theology developed in such a way that they thought, okay, well then if we sin more, We'll get more grace as a result of that truth. They had bought this other kind of good life. We hear that and we think, well, that's absurd. But is it really? Is idolatry really that blunt and blatant? Or is it that subtle? When we pursue other things for the good life, one might be able to call that idolatry. And so Paul speaks to them. And he begins in Romans chapter 6. And he says, What should we say then? 
Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So right out of the gate, he asked this rhetorical question, and basically Paul is saying, that's just absurd. This is absurd to think that we should continue in sin, kind of live this life that led us away from God, even in its own little subtle ways. In other words, what Paul is saying, should we really think that life can be found anywhere else other than in God? He says, how can we who died to finding life anywhere else? How can we who died to rebellion, how can we who died to sin live in it any longer? And so he keeps going. And he says, verse 3, Are you unaware? Don't you guys remember that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Paul is basically saying, Remember your baptism? Remember when your heart was convicted that Jesus is who he said he was and it moved you to be baptized, that you were baptized into Christ, Jesus, into his death. And you were buried with him by baptism into death. And so the death that Jesus died towards sin once and for all is the death that you took on in your baptism. That when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into a new way of life. You were baptized into an eternal way of life. You were baptized into a life that says, I am dead to all of the other things that the world has offered, and Jesus' death is my death. So my past, my, my wants, my desires, I'm, I'm burying it here by faith. And you were buried with him by baptism into death. And you didn't just stay there. You didn't just stay under there. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. The burial was a means to resurrection. It wasn't the end in and of itself. And Paul is saying, don't you remember then when you, when you came out of the water, as Jesus came out of the tomb, you came out of the water, you came out with a, with a new way of life, with a new perspective, with a new life, with a life that was given to you, with a life that was reclaimed, and it was a, it was a good life because it was a new life lived with God. Which means we see the world different now. It's not the old life we lived before. It's the new life we live now in Christ. And so Paul continues to unpack this, and he says in verse 8, and if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Death no longer rules over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So you too. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, the word there for consider, it literally means to take inventory of or count it as fact. Paul is saying that when you're in your darkest moment and the disillusionment of life, when you have sinned and sin is starting to get its hold on you through the guilt, when your wife is on your last nerve, or better stated, your husband is on your last nerve. 
when your children are going crazy, when you cannot find the job, when your job is uncertain, when the world around you seems to be falling apart, remember your baptism. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. When this sin and when this way of life, when your tendency is to be drawn to the illusionment and the trappings of success, to be the businessman at sort of all costs, you know, or to do what, you know, you need to get done because you gotta take care of your family and it's gonna pull you away from God and God's people and it's gonna pull you away to this sort of illusion of the good life. Paul is saying, consider, take it as inventory, count it as fact, reckon it as truth. You are dead to that. That good life that the world offers God God's people has no bondage, no enslaving way about it anymore. Why? Remember your baptism. Remember you died to that in Christ. And you were raised to a new way. See, baptism is highly misunderstood for a whole bunch of reasons. What Paul is saying is that baptism is a gift. And it is a gift given to us by God. And it is a gift given to us by God that we fully get to tangibly experience. But it is a gift that requires, absolutely requires faith. Because when we see someone get baptized, we see them get wet. And we see them come up wet and oftentimes very cold. But what Paul is saying is with the lens of faith, they're buried with Jesus and they raise to walk a new life. It's like Galatians 3, 26, 27 says, for all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many who's been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. They come up new, clothed with Christ, new way of life. It's faith, it's trust, it's believing that God is doing what he says he's going to do. It is what God has done and there's nothing that can be added to it or taken away from it. And that is the point. Remember your baptism. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it because it is a gift of God. Remember your baptism. And that is what Paul would try to tell the Roman church as they were starting to live away from the reality of their new life. Because baptism reminds us that life has been reclaimed. A new way of life and seeing the world different has been reclaimed. Church, this should affect, this will affect how we love. This will affect how we live. This will affect how we see others. This will affect how you see yourself. No matter how pretty you think you are or you aren't. No matter how bald you think you're getting or you're not which is my issue. You are the child of a king. And there's nothing that changes that. And that makes you beautiful. Right? No matter how unsuccessful you feel in your life, no matter how much of a failure you feel you have been in your life, remember your baptism. Because in your baptism, you are reminded that you are an adopted child of the king of God, of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no failure in that. When you feel like you cannot make the right decision and you keep trying and 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 and you just can't stop sinning, remember that you are saved by grace and you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and He can change what you cannot if you just surrender 
to him. Remember then, remember then, remember your baptism. When the world is uncertain and everything seems as though it's fallen apart, death has come knocking at your door. Remember your baptism. See, it's not baptism in and of itself that means a thing. It's what God has attached to it. It's what God has said that it is. God gives the meaning. Not a church, not a theology, not a brand, not a personal conviction, and not a view. That is why Martin Luther had such a high view of it, because he understood that God had given the meaning to it. And it is incumbent upon God's people to listen to God and to remember who we are in Christ now and the beautiful picture and expression and gift that God has given us is our baptism. Because it points us to the one who has set us free. Baptism reminds us of a life that has been reclaimed and it reminds us of a life that has been proclaimed over us as a new creature living a new way of life and it is not because of anything you could do and I could do or ever can do it's because of what God has done and so I say to you today when the darkness and disillusionment of life comes your way when the darkness of this world clouds your eyes may you remember the light of the world and may he shed light along your path may you remember your baptism When the cares of this world seek to bring you down, may you remember the Prince of Peace, that his yoke is easy and his burden in light. May he open your heart and learn from him. Remember your baptism. When the old man or old woman of guilt seeks to arise from his or her watery grave, may you remember the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and gives you life and heavenly power to your mortal body. Remember your baptism. For sin no longer rules over you. When your joy is threatened, remember your baptism. You are the child of a king because of what the king has done for you in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus alone. Remember your baptism. And if there's ever a time to remember that, it is every day of our lives to remember who we are in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. So as Luther would proclaim, and as Paul said, remember your baptism. Let's pray.